Now, virtue signalling is a concept that I only heard about fairly recently. I'm, I'm, I'm not one that's very on-trend and uh, you might be well across this idea much more than I am, but it's something that I only caught up with fairly recently. In, in a positive sense, virtue signalling uh, is when you do or say something to demonstrate your own good character. In a positive sense, in that kind of positive sense, virtue signalling, well, it's intended to be a way of encouraging others to share the same virtue that you have. You're signalling what you view to be virtuous, to be good. And that can be a really good thing if there's consistency between the message and the reality. But most of the time when people talk about virtue signalling and it's actually been talked about increasingly in our media, well, it's generally considered to be a bad thing because it's usually a term to describe when there's an inconsistency between the message and the reality. When the signals that you're trying to send... Well, they're there to try and make you look virtuous, but it doesn't really back up, isn't really backed up by the reality. So we don't have to think too hard to kind of picture all sorts of examples. In fact, I, um, I pulled out a loaf of bread from the freezer the other day and I went, ha, it's right there. Because sometimes we hear about companies making big statements about their environmental credentials, right? There's even a phrase for it, greenwashing, trying to paint your company green. I pulled out my loaf of bread and it proudly told me in the biggest print on the whole package that this bag is 100% recyclable. Which I thought, well, that sounds great. Except it's only helpful if you can recycle the soft plastic bag, which we can't anymore. And even if you could... Surely it would be more environmentally helpful if this package was 100% recycled. They'd already done it. So you could say that they're trying to signal their virtue of, of environmental concern, but in reality they haven't done anything to actually improve environmental outcomes. I'm sure you can think of lots of other examples of virtue signalling, like the sporting code, Aussies love our sport, the sporting codes that, that holds a First Nations or Indigenous rounds, highlighting the contributions of First Nations athletes, which would be a great initiative, but seems to lack integrity when we hear about systematic racism within the same sporting code. Or a celebrity post on social media, outraged at modern slavery and sweatshop labour, only then to be outed as having some pretty dubious supply chains for their signature clothing label. I'm sure you could think of lots of other things that you might have come across recently that fit that description of virtue signalling. Well, today God has a strong word for us and it's a warning in our terms today of a kind of virtue signalling within our church, a kind of virtue signalling that claims to be a part of the people of God, wants to promote that virtue in ourselves but it's It's actually only skin deep. It doesn't reflect a deeper heart reality. So if you've been with us in these recent weeks through Romans, you know we've been hearing lots of hard words. And today we've got some more hard words from God to hear about the state of our hearts. But in the midst of some hard words, let's also be honest that today's passage is just a little bit quirky too. I don't know about you, but circumcision isn't something that I'd consider a polite topic of conversation uh, uh, for a chat over coffee. But here we are on a Sunday morning in Respectable Hove and poor Val had to stand up here and talk about man bits. She mentioned the word circumcision nine times in one short reading. Thank you, Val. <laughs> so, in, this, in the midst of some hard words uh, for us over these recent weeks, let's acknowledge the potential for some people to feel a little bit kind of awkward uh, today. 
that you know, as we make our way through this passage, there will need to be some cutting remarks. And if you thought that was good, wait for this one, because in the week uh, of preparation for our dear Trevor Brown's funeral, I haven't actually run this past you, Carol, but we, I had the great privilege of gaining an even greater insight into the wonderful godly man that Trevor was and his great sense of humour right to the very end, because in just the weeks before he passed on to be with Jesus in glory, he gave hearty endorsement for this joke that his grandson shared with him. And I love it. I wonder if you know the story of what happened to the cross-eyed circumcision doctor. He got the sack. (laughs) Now, I'm mindful, I am mindful that some people might not even know what circumcision is. And I've had lots of feedback from people that they've really appreciated the use of visuals in our sermons. But I've decided this is not the week for it. But to be fair, depending on your cultural background, there are actually plenty of people who don't know what circumcision is and we've got to have some idea of it to make sense of our Bible passage today. Apologies for blunt words if it makes you feel awkward, but circumcision is the surgical removal of the skin on the tip of a man's penis, hence the lack of visuals. And if you didn't know what circumcision was before... Now you really are wondering, why on earth am I sitting here on a Sunday morning talking about circumcision? Well, it's because it was a sign that marked out the people of God. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, we read that God made promises to a man named Abraham. He just plucked him out of obscurity and God made promises to him to be his God, to bless him, to bless his descendants and through them to bless the whole world. For Abraham to live under those promises that required a commitment from him, faith in God's promises. And in Genesis chapter 17, we read that circumcision was to be the outward sign of that commitment. Now, it is a bit of an odd sign, right? Because it's not like some flashing neon sign that everyone can see. It's not even like a, a specific hairdo or you know, a dress code that would kind of be visible to everyone. And it's only for the blokes, but it was a sign for the whole community. So how did it work? Well, the Bible's not specific, but it seems to me that if a Jewish couple were trying to have kids, then then his circumcision was a constant reminder of the covenant that their children would be born into because it was a sign of a covenant for Abraham's descendants that would bless the whole world. And if a Jewish man was engaged in an extramarital affair, then... Well, that sign of circumcision was a reminder to both parties of the breach of covenant that they were engaging with. The Bible isn't specific, but it gives us lots of hints to see that sign tied so closely to the formation and the continuation of the community of God's people. And over the years, as private as it was, circumcision became a source of great pride amongst the people of Israel. It was the sign of their status as God's chosen people. The sign of God's promises to them. The sign that marked them out as distinct from everyone around them. Circumcision in the first century when when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans was the most significant cultural marker of the privilege of being a part of Israel. You could say it was the big snip, the small snip, that meant a big deal. There we go. What's the point of a catch for, you know, a punchline if you can't nail it? 
So why is Paul rising it? Well, we need to remember that Paul was writing to churches in Rome that were a mix of Christians from Jewish backgrounds and non-Jewish backgrounds. And there was all kinds of potential kind of interracial tensions going on there. And the biggest tension was the reality that in many ways, the Jewish people had had special access to God. But Paul was making sure that they understood that all people enter into a relationship with God in exactly the same way, through faith in Jesus. By believing the good news that Jesus is Lord who came to save us all. So that's a long intro to help us to kind of get a little bit of context to where we're at. But let's look together at the danger of virtue signalling. If Alio fl- uh, flashes up the, um, the outline for us here, you can see we're, we're, already, we're already reflecting a little bit on the context of this sign, but we actually want to see that Paul spends the majority of our reading today warning us of the danger of virtue signalling. Thanks, Alio. You see, verse 17 begins, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... And so as Paul writes this, he's, he's addressing specifically the Jews amongst those Christians there in Rome. But, if, you know, he knows that the, sorry, the non-Jewish Gentile believers like us would still be listening on, learning as well. And so in verse 17 and 18, he reminds them all of the very real privileges that the Jewish people had. They could rightly boast in God. That was a good thing. Boasting in him rather than in their own wisdom or their intelligence or their military might, you know, the other things that cultures and nations tend to find reason to boast in. Among all the nations of the earth, they had unique access to God's will to inform their moral framework for life. These were good things. They were a wonderful privilege. And so then in verse 19 and 20, Paul reminds them of the responsibility that came with that privilege. And he's using word pictures that come from, you know, scattered all through the Old Testament. Paul says to them, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Actually, this this was the ideal that God had for his people. That his word wouldn't just instruct them, but that they would be a blessing to all of the nations. That's what God promised to Abraham. That would be a blessing to all of the nations because they would make God and his will known. And yet the Old Testament, it records for us time and again just how badly Israel had gone at fulfilling this expectation. And so that's where Paul turns in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And we get here in a cultural context that we might find hard to kind of engage with and and appreciate. I think in our terms we get the first indication of what we might call their virtue signalling that the message that they communicated was not consistent with the life that they lived. On the one hand, preaching against stealing, but then doing it. Preaching against adultery, but then doing it. Preaching against the pagan worship of idols, but engaging in activities that benefited from the practice of idolatry. Now, to be fair, that last term, it's a tricky one to unpack, but the point is pretty clear. There was this big disconnect between the signals that they were sending and the lives that they were living. And as verse 23 and 24 sum up for us, using the words of the prophet Isaiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament, instead of God's people highlighting the glory of God and his goodness for all to see, their hypocrisy made, made him look bad in front of everyone. And the point is not that God felt embarrassed by that. It's actually much worse. 
The problem was that all the nations wouldn't be given the opportunity to realise just how wonderful it is to do life with God and, and how terrible the alternative would be. Because, as Paul puts it here, quoting from the Old Testament, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so that's what brings us to verse 25 in the paragraph on circumcision. And maybe it's starting to come together for us. Why circumcision? Well, because circumcision was the sign that marked out the people of God. Well, it should have. But in our terms today, it had been turned into kind of an an empty virtue signal. Paul's point is blunt. That in failing to honour the law of God, the people had effectively annulled the virtue that they claimed through their circumcision. Verse 25, if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Those words, they're easy for us to read. But for someone from a Jewish background in Paul's time, this was Boom, this is like a stun grenade going off. That a person born Jewish, born as a member of the covenant community, that they could be considered not a Jew, not a part of God's people, outside the promises of God, that their circumcision, their their cultural identity markers as belonging under the promises of God, that, that would mean nothing. I mean, how is it possible that even the sign, the sign that you are one of God's people, even that wasn't a guarantee that you actually were one of God's people? And Paul's point is simple, if you'll pardon the pun, because it was never meant to be just skin deep. The sign of circumcision didn't make you one of God's people. God's covenant promises is what creates his people. And the sign was meant to reflect a deep heart reality of life with God through his promises. To put it another way, circumcision was meant to be an act of obedience flowing out of a life lived by faith in God's promises. So in many ways, Paul wasn't saying anything new because a bunch of the Old Testament prophets had said very similar things, but he was saying something very challenging. That if circumcision didn't guarantee your membership in God's people, well, then no amount of religious tradition or ritual or outward performance or good works or anything else that we might want to signal to others, none of it could overcome the inner reality of the human heart. Now today, it's, it's pretty likely that very few of us have any questions about Jewish ethnicity. And if you are here today, and that is your background, I want to acknowledge that I am speaking of one of the most significant cultural aspects of your heritage and actually making light of it and joking about it. But I hope you can respect that that's because we want to actually come to see how something so private and particular actually really does have significance for us today too. Because there there really do remain some very significant implications for our thinking about church today. Because if it is true that even the sign that God had given to his people, to mark out his people as his people, even if that wasn't enough to make them his people, then how much more is it true 
for all of the outward signs that we might think mark us out as God's people. And it flows from what we've been learning in Romans about our seriously broken relationship with God. See, the hard word for us today is that none of our attempts to signal a a right relationship with God achieve anything. Let's think that through on the ground. Perhaps you, like me, were born into a Christian family. You attended church from as young as you can remember. You can chat over coffee about different members of your family that are involved in different churches or ministries around the place. Perhaps you're tempted to think that your family background secures your place amongst God's people. You were born into it, surely. But no. Such a family background is is a great blessing. But no one is simply born a Christian. There must be more to it. Or perhaps it's religious practice that you find yourself looking to. Your baptism your public testimony, your regular attendance at church and growth group, the spot that you have on a roster, perhaps all of these things mark you out as one of God's people. Yet as good as those things are, Paul's point stands, the outward sign is useless if it doesn't reflect an inner reality. Tim Keller, as he so often did, put it in a wonderfully concise way for us, to borrow his phrase, the great danger is to trust in Christianity rather than in Christ. It's the danger of trusting in Christianity as a system of belief or a lifestyle or a moral framework where we might you know, have an intellectual grasp of the gospel. We can nod our heads in a conversation to particular doctrines. We might really strongly affirm particular moral stance on, on important issues. We want to be seen to be playing a part in public worship. But beneath all of that, there may be no inner life with God. And none of our outward attempts are worth anything if there isn't life beneath the surface. Without real heart change, it's all nothing more than just virtue signalling. But Paul finishes on a positive note, showing us the only hope for real relationship. What is the hope for real relationship? We've had three weeks of pretty challenging messages from God about the state of our hearts, steeped in sin, conflicted in our own self-righteousness. If something as significant as circumcision made no difference, then what hope is there? What do we need to fix this problem? It's becoming clear, it's not just a matter of work harder, try harder, do good, do less bad, make more sacrifices. Well, in verse 29, Paul sticks with the theme, the really powerful image of circumcision that he's been using to to point us to the solution. Verse 29, you might want to read it with me. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So friends, in a manner of speaking, Paul is making clear for us, God is speaking to us saying, we all need circumcision, but not physically speaking. We all need God to do some spiritual surgery, but the surgery we need cuts deep into our hearts. 
We need the Spirit of God to cut out uh, the heart of our old self and, and to transplant in a new heart that beats with his life. That is our only hope. You know, any effort to kind of fix the problem ourselves, there are only going to be superficial attempts to kind of paper over the deep and pressing need that is within. We need God by his Spirit to do what we cannot do, to totally transform us. Cut out the dead self. Bring in the life of Christ. And at the end of it all, Paul gives us a one-sentence picture of what this person looks like. Actually, if you read it carefully, you'll notice that it's, it's actually a picture of who this person looks to. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Because the person who's virtually, virtue signalling they're trying to show others just how great they are. Like that bread company talking about their packaging that you could recycle if you could find the right place to put it, but they haven't bothered to recycle anything themselves. Trying to show others how great we are, how much we belong, how much we deserve their respect or their praise. That is life with an uncircumcised heart, life with the old self still beating away in our chest. But the sign of the person who belongs to God is it's nothing outward and it's actually not looking to others for our affirmation. It's the inner work of God. Now to be clear, we're going to need to unpack this a lot more. We can't, we can't really dig into all of this this morning. You've heard that a, a, few, a few times over the last few weeks but that's because Romans is such a rich book that it, it'll raise an idea for us and then we'll come back to this, particularly in chapters 5 through 8 of, of Romans. But for today, I think the take-home is very simple and very practical. A simple question for you. Change the image entirely. Who are you dancing for? Do you dance to impress the crowds? Do you want to keep mum and dad happy? Your Facebook followers? Are you trying to keep up appearances here at church? To look the part? To be sufficiently respectable and acceptable to others? Friends, the take home from today, it's a stern rebuke that we need to hear. Stop looking to the crowd and dance for the audience of one. You know, all our attempts to mark ourselves out as the people of God, they are, they are futile if they don't reflect an inner reality. They're just trying to paint ourselves pretty. Trying to, trying to buff up the profile and, and fool the crowd. We need to hear Paul. We need to stop it. But actually, this isn't just rebuke. It's... It's a glimmer of hope and comfort. It's a great, warm encouragement. Stop, stop the exhausting work of looking to the crowd and enjoy the dance for the one who really matters. Because he he's the one who loves you so much that he's reached into your very heart to give you his own. Transplant surgery is expensive, this one especially, and God has paid the price for it. He sees you and he loves you. And most of all, he is the one that you can trust. Like truly, actually, 
Unlike the crowds that you're never sure whether you've said enough to win their approval, to convince them, he is the one who sees you as you are and loves you. And he delights to reach right into our hearts and give us his own. That's the encouragement. So let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, this morning you've, you've challenged us with kind of some insight into a culture that is so foreign and, and removed, so distant for many of us, and yet we see in this passage that you know our hearts so well. And Father, we acknowledge that in so much of life we, we are so concerned about projecting a message of who we are and what we're on about and that we belong to you, to others, that all too easily we forget. You see right through. You see the secret hidden things of our heart. Father, we want to heed Paul's warning here this morning. We want to heed Jesus' own words that we would not be like the hypocrites who stand on the street corners and and pray or parade our fasting or our good deeds or our generous giving or our sacrificial service before others to be seen by them, but Lord, that you would help us to be people who long simply to be seen by you because we know that you love us. Father, we pray, we beg that by your spirit you would be at work deep in our hearts, cutting away the old self that is so caught up in ourselves, breathing new life into us by your spirit. Father, where we are burdened by anxieties, by constant apprehensions, by the weight of our own pride and arrogance, please lift that off us as you transform us by your Spirit. Father, may we stop dancing for the crowd and know the great joy of dancing for the audience of one, that you are the one who makes us your people because you loved us enough to send us your Son to bring us home. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.